When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Gurdeep Ladar and Justin Galsman of the TCB cast Join Nate to wrap up their discussion of Elvis Presley's life and career based on Peter Guralnik's Careless Love, The Unmaking of Elvis Presley, and HBO's The Searcher. Nate, Gurdip, and Justin discuss the long, slow dissolution of Elvis Presley in the 1970s, the role of Colonel Tom Parker, and the work and accomplishments of The Fallen King. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, I'm joined by the hosts of the TCB cast, the best podcast about Elvis, Justin Gausman, and Gurdip Ladhar, and we're here to discuss Peter Goralnik's definitive biographies of Elvis Presley and the HBO The Searcher. So we're going to try to tell the story of Elvis Presley in two hour-long podcasts. This is part two. Last time we covered the meteoric rise, and today we're going to cover the long, grinding, tragic fall. Gurdip. Yes. General thoughts on um, welcome to back back to the show first. Thank you. And, Thank you. And general thoughts on both the book and the documentary and their handling of what's generally treated as the second half of Elvis's life. Well, I think I've mentioned this before. Um, the first volume I thought was great because it really covered um, some of Elvis's early life, his parents' early life. And then he, he had this big chunk where it goes from um, 52 onward until um, he goes to Germany, right before he goes to Germany. And he had a lot of detail and Gorelnik spent a lot of time you know, documenting that rise. But then the second volume I felt was a little rushed because he had to cover um, the army life, not only the army life, but then post-army all the way to 77. And I think um, it was a bit too condensed for my liking. I'm sure other people would um, prefer that maybe because they're like, oh, there's a lot here to dig into. But me personally, I thought three volumes would have been a 
bit better. Maybe go from Army to 68 and then a third volume from 68 to 77. But that's just me. But I did really enjoy the two books. Um, I read them multiple times and, you know, I enjoy them a lot. It's just I want more. That's essentially it. And then The Searcher, I thought, was also really good. That one, um, obviously, it can't cover exactly what the Grelnick books did. But it did do a good job, and I like that they focused in on the music, especially both volumes. Um, but I don't, yeah, that, 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 those are essentially my thoughts on both of those. And Justin, before you jump in, I want to give the title of both Goralnik books just out of respect for the source material here. The first one is The Last Train to Memphis, The Rise of Elvis Presley, which we discussed last time. And this time we're talking about Careless Love, The Unmaking of Elvis Presley. Go ahead, Justin. Well, and isn't that the most uh, apt title that he you would think that, you know, the rise and you would say the fall typically, but Goralnik chooses his words carefully. And uh, it was deliberate that it was, you know, the unmaking because it, it's not just a fall, you know, there it's so much more complex than, you know, your, your traditional, uh, what you would think of as just a fall from grace uh, that so many other artists had. It really was, on a fundamental level and unmaking of, you know, him creatively, of him personally, of him health wise. Uh, and, and it's a fascinating story that, uh, you know, over the years, I personally have felt, you know, as an Elvis fan, you, you start to feel like that era is a little over talked about compared to certain other eras of his life. Uh, you know, people tend to like to view things that are, you know, more morbid, you know, we have a morbid curiosity. Um, but there's still so much here that's worth talking about, and you really can't get grasp the whole Elvis story without talking about, you know, everything from the army to his death. Um, and, and yeah, same with the searcher. I mean, and and again, like Gurdip said, the emphasis was really to put the the focus back on the music and you know, sort of Elvis the man to an extent, but really try to pull pull away from exploring necessarily Elvis, you know, uh, as a uh, cultural phenomenon from a larger perspective. It's really trying to, you know, sort of like the Guralnik books did where you're getting almost a, not, not necessarily day by day, but a, a week by week or a, or month by month, you know, step through his life and kind of yeah. follow that journey. Uh, absolutely. And, and Guralnik has, I think a pretty apt sentence to describe the story of Elvis's inexorable decline, what could almost be called the vanishing of Elvis Presley. And that, I think, sums it up really well. And it's a painful story to read. He introduces, you know, the first words of the foreword are, this is a tragedy. And especially after reading the first book, and, you know, for many Elvis fans, obviously, they love Elvis. But for, for those of us who are not maybe Elvis-centric, but just general music fans who really dive into Elvis with these books and you really appreciate just what an enormous force he was. And, you know, you watch the movies and you listen to the music and you really begin to feel the incredible talent and vision of this young man. This wasn't just some idiot savant who happened to be good at music. This was a brilliant young man who took in influences like a sponge, who happened to live in a time and place that was a crossroads of American culture and was open-minded enough, exceptionally open-minded, coming from a really, really, really racist time and place, open-minded to black music, gospel music, white music, country music, and had a vision of summing up 
this American music that he heard and expressing it and embodying it. And his work in the 50s comes so close to accomplishing this. And then at the end of the first book, he's drafted into the army, which is still, you know, and we're, we're speaking from a very dark time in American history and in the summer of 2020. And when you look back on American history and you think about a country where a local draft board not only decides to draft the most famous citizen of their town and take him away from fame and fortune and from you know massive concert audiences and enormous music audiences and movie audiences and take that money out of circulation but that they're allowed to do this you know that that not only does Elvis acquiesced to this, but Colonel Parker acquiesces to this, and that the powers that be, that there's nobody higher up in the chain. And I mean, obviously, I don't think Dwight Eisenhower, the president at the time, should have been focused on Elvis, but it's just it, – and when you look and compare the fates of Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis and Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran and so many of his contemporaries, you know, there's self-damage in, in almost every one of those stories and bad luck and others – but the net effect is, you know, these people were destroyed virtually. They were all taken out of circulation in a very neat period of time from late 57 to, you know, by late 59, early 60. By the time Eddie Cochran dies and Gene Vincent's doubly crippled in a horrific car accident in England, the first wave of rock and rollers are finished. And Elvis, by that point, has been in the army in Germany, tucked away, and his brilliant Yet, very limited manager, Colonel Tom Parker, you know, honorary colonel. There's certainly mm-hmm. <laughs> never served in any capacity in the armed forces. Well, actually, but, he did. Yeah, he did. In oh, the oh yeah, clarified. Yes, yes. This, this, but was not a colonel by any stretch. Correct. Yeah, yes. and and apparently, uh, the, this is according to a different book, but uh, apparently there's po- a possibility that he may have jumped ship uh, from the army at, at some point in the past, which may have been another contributing factor to him not not wanting to have Elvis go overseas and also not wanting to accompany Elvis to Germany. Yes, and, and Garalik devotes a whole chapter to this called The Colonel's Secret. Not that specific charge of, of desertion, but just the fact that he was an illegal alien. He was a Dutch citizen who had come to the U.S. and never taken the right steps to become a citizen and therefore wouldn't leave the country. And because of his need to control Elvis, wouldn't let Elvis leave the country. And, and you know, Garalik says at the beginning, there are no villains here. And reading Garalik's book – Especially when they talk about the triumphant comeback and and the Vegas shows, not so much the TV special, but the Vegas shows, when Elvis puts a band together and plays live for the first time in several years and has this triumphant performance in Vegas. And and Garanik does a great job of, of conveying the relationship of Elvis and Tom Parker and the fact that they did work well together and they did love each other and they were allies and friends and partners but then, you know, when you watch The Searcher and you think of Elvis and then you compare him to the very few people he can be compared to, and that's, you know, Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby and Al Jolson and Michael Jackson and these other, you know, James Brown, these handful of titans of American music and performance. And you realize how stunted Elvis's not just his career, but his life was, and particularly the end of The Searcher documentary when they 
talk about the number of shows he played and the number of albums he recorded and the number of movies he made. And you think about his batting average, as it were, and compare him to someone like James Brown, who seized control of his artistic destiny, who seized control of his career, or somebody like Bing Crosby, who did the same thing. You know, he surrounded himself with excellent management, but ultimately he made his own decisions. Elvis never did that. And it's a painful thing. And you got to, I find myself blaming Colonel (laughs) Tom Parker. I mean, is he a villain? Justin. You know, I I don't believe so. Um, I I tend to agree with Goralnik that there there really isn't a, a villain per se in the story. Um, if by definition there had to be a villain, it would probably be Elvis Presley. Uh, to be honest, because fair enough. At, at the end of the day, and and remember, we're the ones hosting the Elvis podcast. <laughs> um, but. <laughs> I mean, that's what it really comes down to is that, uh, you know, Parker was flying blind just as much as Elvis was. There was no roadmap. And, and what little roadmap there was, they tried to follow. You you know, you, we talk about, you know, and obviously we're going to get into stuff like the movies, but he's following a model of, you know, the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis comedies with, you know, Norman Torog directing a bunch of Elvis's movies in, in the 60s. When he's, you know, older and going blind, I mean, that, that they're holding on to, you know, the last bits of the old you know the old way of doing things in the entertainment industry because that's the only roadmap that they have and sure the Beatles and James Brown and everyone that comes after Elvis has the opportunity to look at you know what's going on there and go oh we're going to take a different approach but you know, nothing is on the same scale as what Elvis except for the Beatles you know and, and they've at least got you know them you know each other Elvis is flying blind and so is the Colonel yeah, and the formulaic uh, aspect of those 60s films got to Elvis eventually because um, initially he was fine with it. They're making money. They're making a lot of money, and uh, he can still record music. But as the years went on, and uh, we're going to talk about the Hill and Range, but he was limited to what he rec- he could record as well. So he would he would he just you know show up and just do his songs, put no effort into it. But the real music that he was making was stuff that he was doing at home and in, uh, in uh, his Bel Air house. And, you know, some of that stuff later came out and then how great the art came out. So later on, you can see that he was frustrated that he couldn't do anything about it. And finally, in the late 60s, you know, he broke up. But as Justin was saying, no one stopped Elvis from recording what he wanted in the 70s. He just, I think, obviously he had to do with the pills as well. But he kind of lost his passion for singing. And all he wanted to do was spend money and to spend money, he needed to keep going on tour. So I think a lot of people do villainize Colonel a lot because of that. But also, I mean, the Colonel had a lot of mistakes as well. But as Justin was saying, where's the guide to follow? We like there's nothing to follow. We got to kind of roll with what we have. And, you know, they talk about that in the documentary a lot, too. I think Tom Petty's one of the people who says there's no guidebook to follow. But Having spent the last year devouring Gary Giddens' two-volume bios of Bing Crosby, and he's he's doing a third one. So Bing's life is big enough for three volumes. Hopefully the publishers agree. And <laughs> devouring James Kaplan's two-part biography of Sinatra. And from a publishing aspect, those are clearly modeled on the Goralnik books, which were a big success. 
However, there was a there was a, a path. It wasn't rock and roll, and it wasn't TV. So I understand that Elvis was a new era. But both Sinatra and Crosby navigated much of the same mass media success and enormous fame, and were able to carve out room for artistic growth. Both in music and in film. The th- the thing that those performers have in common with Elvis is that they were Elvis is really the last of an era when the peak of stardom was seen as becoming a Hollywood movie star from the teens, twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, Hollywood was and movie stardom was the absolute apex. And Elvis is part of a process that changes that to being TV stardom, but really rock stardom becomes the absolute apex. And so in that sense, it's different, but Bing and Frank were somehow able to, emancipate themselves and my the closest i can come to a theory as to why is is being's better education and both frank and being being older when they achieved mass success and having had to work much harder and i think tom petty makes the point in the searcher that elvis was very very young when he became enormously famous and was cut off from getting to experience life as a regular person and so his ability to input new information and be a music fan and and just walk the streets and 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 learn and absorb was extremely limited and i want to talk about germany just for a little bit but first i want to play a snippet this is the end of it's now and never which is a an english rewrite of the italian operatic ballad sole mio and let's hear Elvis unveil an unprecedented singing style for himself and an amazing ability to hit high notes that he had never shown before. My love it's now or never. My love Elvis Presley's smash hit from 1960, Now or Never, based on Osola Mio. And this is something that Elvis cooked up while he was in Germany. He he took the time while he was in the army, and obviously he had a full eight-hour day job at, with the army and was a private and, and in an armored battalion, I believe. Mm-hmm. But he met a guy named Charlie Hodge, who was a singer and, and in the music business, and together they got into operatic singing and Charlie really helped Elvis master some of the techniques to be able to do a swoop like that, which is really amazing. And it shows that Elvis was growing and thinking and listening while he was in Germany. And, you know, this it's part of the recording sessions for Elvis's back, which was his big comeback album. And Guralnik does a great job of showing just how excited Elvis was to be back in the studio. And he's working with the cream of the Nashville session men and two thirds of his original band, Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana. And it's an explosive mix and they do great work. But at the same time, while Elvis was in Germany, he had been given amphetamines by the U.S. Army. And he had met a 14-year-old named Priscilla Presley And he had been isolated and surrounded himself with what became known as the Memphis Mafia much later, but what he called the guys. Mm -hmm. And so these patterns that are going to dog him for the rest of his life are there 
all introduced in this brief period in Germany, drug addiction, the sycophants, and I don't want to say a bizarre relationship with Priscilla Presley, but a pretty stunted relationship. I mean, you know, he's a he's a 20-something young man falling in love and assiduously courting a, a girl he met when she was 14. And that's just kind of weird. I mean, does that... My take on it is he was somehow stunted, you know, that the Tom Petty theory of here's a 19-year-old who suddenly becomes world famous and he's trying to recapture his childhood. And when you compare it to the romance he had with Dixie Locke in the first book, very different. Gurdip, mm-hmm. thoughts thoughts on the German experience? Uh, well, as you said, he was experimenting uh, with music in Germany. You can actually hear a bunch of tapes that he where he records music uh, on his time off in Germany. And some of the music that he would go on to uh, sing in the studio, he does in Germany. Like um, like you said, it's now or never. It was also Lamino, but also it was also uh, There Is No Tomorrow by Tony Martin, which Elvis loved. And they rewrote the lyrics to that. Uh, they got Aaron Schroeder to rewrite the lyrics so they, you know, they could have their own copyright claim on it. Um, but yeah, you can, if you check out those tapes, you can see that he, he, he is, uh, changing his style up. Also there, I don't know if it's ever been brought up, but because of the European style, he was in that area era and the area, uh, he, he, he soaked up the music that was coming from Europe as well. So you can hear that influence with a lot of his early sixties music, music. Um, the thing with Priscilla, that's, that's hard to say. Um, obviously he knew it was probably wrong, to be with someone who's 14 obviously he must have known about jerry lee lewis and everything that happened with him but probably because his mom passed away he's in this foreign land he's alone i mean obviously he has some of his friends but still he's alone um and now here's someone who's from the states who's not uh, from germany and they just have a regular conversation and like you said his growth was stunted probably because he 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 got up to sun and that was it he, his normal experiences were over and here's someone who who would be his around his age when he first started so it, they they would have stuff in common so that's probably why he was infatuated with her and he did kind of forget about her when he went back to the states but then i guess she would keep calling and writing and he eventually um acquiesced and this she came over and you know how all that story went but um yeah um uh, me and Justin mostly like to concentrate on the music in our sh- in our podcast. We don't really delve into his personal life too too much. But um, musically, I think when he came back uh, in the early '60s, he was excellent. Like the training with Charlie Hodge helped obviously because you can hear the difference when you first listen to like "Make Me Know It" or "Thrill of Your Love" or any of those songs from that Elvis and Elvis back album. It's excellent. It's great. Anything to add about the Germany period? And I just want to say, I do want to focus on the music. The Priscilla thing's really the only bit, and we will talk about Anne Margaret a little bit, but those are the only two bits of his personal life I want to get into. But I just think it's so pivotal that relationship with Priscilla. So go ahead, Justin. To me, I I was going to go a little bit of a a different route than Gurdip because we've had this conversation on our on our show before. Um, You know, as as much as we prefer to focus on the music and the movies, eventually you 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 know these things brush up. You know, they're they're inseparable you you can't you know take the music or the art uh without taking the man and uh you know i i've stated on the show that i feel personally that it's a uh you know classic case of grooming at the very least um 
But, you know, and, and this is not in any way to excuse it. And the excuse often does come up that, well, like, well times were different then. Um, and I was actually looking up statistics, but like in 1960, um, I think it was the statistic was one in 10 uh, marriages in 1960, like actual marriages to people under 18. It was one in 10 of all marriages collectively. Um, so it's not like it was unheard of at the time for someone, you know, older to be in, you know, a relationship with someone younger, but there's no question that Elvis knew that it was wrong um, and still pursued it. And, and to the point that you were talking about, Nate, absolutely. I agree that part of why Priscilla uh, appealed to Elvis is that he was emotionally, I mean, he was functionally a 19 year old uh, perpetually from, you know, from from the point at which he, you know, hits it big until, you know, when he returns from the army and he's kind of he had to grow up a little bit. I mean, he's got the emotional maturity of a, of a teenager. Um, and, and I think as the 60s go, that changes um, because he tries to kind of wiggle his way out of the Priscilla thing and tries to avoid, you know, marrying her to a certain extent. Um you know, and by the time we get to the late 60s, of course, he does. And by that point, you know, she's in her 20s. And, you know, that's a totally different thing. So and a lot of people like to focus on the fact that she was 14 when they met. But again, when they married, you know, she was much older. So I don't know. It's a, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it it's, a, it's a lot to unpack. And we've got a lot to cover. So so I, I want to keep us moving. But I want to talk uh, one last thing from Germany. And that's the beginnings of this pack of sycophants that he is surrounded by or surrounds himself with. And sycophants, I mean, I think Ronick does a good job of showing that these were bright guys, these were capable guys, but none of them were as capable as Elvis or as bright as Elvis. I mean, this is somebody who has whose peers can be counted on, you know, the fingers of two hands over a century, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And so at any given time, he's maybe got one or two peers on earth, but Someone like Frank Sinatra surrounded himself with songwriters and musicians and artists and, you know, editors of magazines and movie stars and politicians. Yeah. And Elvis is surrounded with a bunch of guys from Memphis uh, that he went to high school with. And it really limits him. And and now I want to switch to the um, comeback. Quick and quick thing, though. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Quick thing. Um Elvis wasn't alone in that. The colonel uh, made sure that anyone exactly. who was um, who could influence Elvis, be it Scotty Moore, Bill Black, um, Lieber and Stoller, they were kept away from Elvis uh, for, during his personal time. Like uh, Scotty and uh, DJ were including the Jordanaires were banned from hanging out with Elvis during that uh, Frank Sinatra TV special, the Timex special in Florida during their times off, just when they were rehearsing, they could hang out with them. He did that on purpose. He wanted to make sure that people who could influence Elvis in any way, creatively or anything, were kept far away. And he didn't consider the Memphis Mafia as they would become to be, to be known as threats because he thought these guys are idiots. They're not going to do anything. They'll just hang on because all they want is to hang with Elvis and get girls and whatever Elvis gives to them. So um, uh, the colonel did play a part in that. Excellent point. I'm glad you brought that up. And that to me is another you know point on the side of villainous Colonel Parker. But, <laughs> but so Elvis comes back. He records this great album, Elvis is Back, which – doesn't do as well as the next album he does, which is a soundtrack mm -hmm. album for GI Blues, and it's not great. Um, and he'll, you know, Elvis carefully picked the songs for Elvis's Back, and GI Blues 
the songs were presented to him by Hill and Range and by the studios and by RCA. And he had this unusual deal where Colonel Parker was a very savvy guy, especially in the short term on the financial side. And he recognized that the big money to be made in music is from songwriting publishing. And if you're not a songwriter like Elvis, you have to have some other way to get a piece of that. And so Elvis had a deal with the one, a major publishing house, Hill and Range, that required, you know, they would generally hire songwriters to work for hire and give up their copyrights. And Elvis Presley Music would then own the copyrights. And if Elvis wanted to do another cover song, they would insist on getting a piece of the action frequently getting into the copyright itself of the piece. And while mm -hmm. there's a certain amount of fairness to that, you know, if, if you're say Palmas and Schumann, who are a songwriting team from the Brill building that, that actually worked for Hill and range as salaried writers and were the best writers uh, that Elvis worked with in the sixties, along with Otis Blackwell, you know, it's, it's a fair deal. You get a steady job, you know, you've got an anchor client and you can still do songs for other performers, the drifters and the coasters, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and get all of that. And if, if Elvis records your song, it's going to be a much bigger hit than anybody else. So if he wants 30%, you know, you're still getting 70% of a much bigger pie than you would have right. gotten on your own. So there's mm -hmm. some argument to be made in defense of this. The problem is, I believe Frank Sinatra did something similar the problem is, you know, Frank Sinatra had an excellent song selector who understood Frank's music and understood that the priority was getting Frank great songs. Right. And Freddie Beanstalk of Hill and Range, his priority seems to have been Freddie Beanstalk's bank account and the, <laughs> the, the kickbacks he could get. And they just did not deliver the material to Elvis. Other than Pomus and Schumann and some of the Otis Blackwell songs, it's pretty weak stuff. It's true. Um, although he did pick the stuff from the 50s as well, and you got to give him credit for that. Like he was the guy who brought in Don't Be Cruel. Problem was, though, as the 60s kept going, you had less and less writers wanting to actually give up some of their rights because Elvis wasn't putting up the numbers that he was in the 50s. So then you had these lower level tier writers and you, you started getting less of the Pomus and Schumann and more of the uh, Dolores Fullers out there. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and the flip side to that, like where you were heading, Nate, with the idea that it's almost they've got a chokehold on it because – uh, they're holding all the cards, like you said. El, you know, you get an Elvis Presley cut, and and you're pretty much set for life. Um, and and that's you know knowing that at the time, like he's having you know hit after hit after hit after hit in the early you know the late fifties and the early sixties. Um, I mean, he's a gold mine, and you know even today you look at you know some of his kind of met albums in the mid sixties and some of those were still go, you know, over the years have gone gold. So, you know, those songwriters are still receiving, you know, a, a ton of money. Well, may, I mean, maybe relative speaking, but you know, it, it's still giving them some revenue that they might not have gotten from another artist. And so they've got a way, you know, do they hold on to that or do they get a cut of the pie? Um, but the great irony is that because they've got, this kind of chokehold on on things, uh, Hill and Range and and Colonel and Elvis, uh, they're ne never actually short on songwriters because people want a cut of that pie, but they may not necessarily be the best songwriters. The best songwriters might realize that oh well, I'm an artist and I'm going to you know 
put my stuff to people who, you know, I, yeah, I believe in more, you know, than Elvis Presley. And even so. some of the staff writers would not necessarily give him their best songs. You know, Palmer right. Schumann didn't give him Save the Last Dance for Me, for example. So, True. and I mean, that might've been a timing factor as well, but that's just the first great um, Palmas and Schumann. And, you know, mm -hmm. they wrote things like Viva Las Vegas and Little Sister Marie's The Name, which are wonderful Elvis songs, but are not quite Doc Palmas's best so work. Can I, can yeah, I talk, can, can we, can we talk about the movie soundtrack material? Because that's Absolutely. another thing too, is uh, the movie soundtracks kind of got conflated with, you know, his general material. Um, and, and I, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for some of those conversations because I don't really understand other than, you know, you look at GI Blues and you look at Blue Hawaii and they sell like mad way better than Elvis's back. You know, the, the, you know, more well respect. I mean, I actually call the Elvis's back album, Elvis's best fifties album, like stylistically kind of perfectly encapsulates everything great about Elvis in the fifties, but it's much more polished. But by, by that, uh, on the flip side of that, you have GI Blues and Blue Hawaii, and the fans are buying that up. And so they essentially, you know, Colonel and RCA, they go, oh, well, let's just do more of that. And let's just have that be the music that Elvis is known for and that singles are being pulled from, you know, regardless of, you know, what the quality is, even though a lot of times those songs are written to fit scenes in a screenplay uh, or to, you know, just serve as a title track for uh, a movie. And yeah, there's someone's some songs in there that, that Gurdip and I like, you know, we really like follow that dream and we like bossa Nova baby and we like Viva Las Vegas. Um, Gurdip like likes Beach Shack from Spin Out, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> that's a different story. Let's not go there. And, uh, <laughs> but and, and that, Steph's telling me I got a cue. And since we're here yeah. at this point, I got a. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to pull out one of the egregious clams, if you will, of the movie soundtrack period. And I got to do, do the clam by Elvis Presley. Sound. Grab the first one in your reach. Now we're gonna shake the beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do the clam, do the clam. Grab your barefoot baby by the hand. Turn and tease, hug and squeeze. And that was Do the Clam by Elvis Presley. And that's just illustrative of the kind of crap that Elvis was presented with and recorded. And to me, the idea of presenting one of the greats of American musical history with a song like that, with the idea that he would actually put that in his mouth and sing it, is just heresy. And it well, crushed and, and, Elvis. And, oh, so, and, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, you guys know more of the details than I'm trying to make mistakes, so please jump in. No, no, no. I, I was just going to add on that you know, when you look at these these movie soundtracks, they're not marketed like traditional movie soundtracks. You don't think of Paradise Hawaiian style in the same breath as West Side Story or The Sound of Music, you know, and, yeah. and that's that's a failure on the part of RCA and, and Colonel Parker. They didn't understand artistically what they were even doing. Uh, and so what you would end up with is that 
songs that had nothing to do with the movies uh, would get relegated to the back, you know, to the B sides of these movie soundtracks. And they were way more artistically interesting because Elvis didn't put out uh, a proper studio album with the exception of the gospel album from 1962 when he did Potluck to From Elvis in Memphis in 1969, uh, other than he did the gospel album in between there. But you've got stuff like Tomorrow is a Long Time on on the backside of Spin Out, and you've got Guitar Man on, you know, I mean, granted, they threw that one on uh, side A of Clambake, but I mean, they just had no idea what they were doing. Yeah, and they had no regard for the artist. They had no concept that Elvis had artistic merit, I think, fundamentally. They saw him as some sort of rock and roll piffle and and kid stuff and a limited actor. And, and, you know, Elvis fought and was promised that he would be getting artistic movies. And they did two, um, Flaming Star and what's the other one? Follow that dream. A wild, wild in, in the, the country. country, yeah. Yeah. Wild in the country. And neither of them quite clicked. And, you know, Goralnik blames part of that on Elvis. And it might have been the amphetamines. His, his performances were not as inspired as they had been in the 50s. But eventually, the combination of bad films, or increasingly bad films, and the Colonel's habit of negotiating constantly meant that a bigger and bigger percentage of each movie's budget was going to Elvis. Meanwhile, the overall budget for the movie shrinking because they're seeing diminishing returns. And so Elvis is getting bigger paychecks to be in cheaper and cheaper movies. And it wears his audience down and it wears him down. And it, and he is disassociated from the 60s. You know, Dylan's coming out. The Beatles are coming out. The Rolling Stones are coming out. Motown is happening. Phil Spector's happening. And Elvis is just sort of tuning it out. For one thing, he's on a treadmill. And another thing, he knows he's no longer leading the way and he's not even involved. And, and you know, Priscilla talks about that in The Searcher. You know, he's just walled off. And Odetta sings Dylan is one of the few windows like his he puts out two gospel albums in the 50s that are passion projects and gospel music remains his go-to his the music he comforts himself with and and he pushes those two gospel albums through and they both do very well i mean i think they're two of the best selling gospel albums in history and but go ahead i i believe how great thou art won a grammy yes yes and 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 you know so he's but you know it's still it's not big time but right. but he, he he does you mentioned his version of tomorrow's a long time by bob dylan and he couldn't stand dylan singing which was totally understandable a lot of people can't stand it but when he heard odetta taste <laughs> yes yeah, so when he heard odetta singing it he got it and he loved those songs and he wanted to do them and he does tomorrow's a long time brilliantly and Watching The Searcher and seeing that album cover, Odetta Sings Dylan, it's like, where was Elvis Sings Dylan? You know, where was Elvis Sings Lennon and McCartney? Where was Elvis Sings Motown? Where was Elvis Sings Stax? I mean, there was so much great material, and he's just cut off from it. And Guitar Man is another one, a pivotal one, that I want to cover, because that's a song by Jerry Reed, who was a country guitarist, that Elvis wanted to do. And they actually bring in Jerry Reed to play the session because none of the guitar players could handle could figure out the tuning of that song. And Elvis wanted it the way he'd heard it on the Jerry Reed performance. Jerry Reed comes in, they record it. Elvis is fired up. They record several other songs, Big Boss Man by Jimmy Reed and some others. And this is the first time in years when Elvis has been passionately excited at a recording session. 
And then Hill and Range comes in because they realize they had not locked in the publishing with Jerry mm-hmm. Reed before this happens. And Jerry Reed knows he's got him by the balls and plays hardball and threatens to walk out and does walk out. And the session's in on a bitter note. Ultimately, they do cut a deal and, and, the, and the song is released. But I see that as sort of a beginning of Elvis awakening because of the ugliness of the confrontation in front of the musicians, in front of Elvis, and and the contrast with the excitement of playing music with great musicians, which is what Elvis loved more than anything. And that sort of lays the groundwork for this comeback special on TV, which he sort of stumbles into because the colonel has run him into the ground in Hollywood. He's gotten to a point where nobody in Hollywood will um, – offer him a deal anymore because the movies aren't making any money and mm-hmm. and the colonel's too hard to deal with and so they they get this tv special and the colonel thinks it's just going to be a corny christmas special and a couple of producers come along that understand elvis and have a vision tell us a little bit about the tv special and the people that put it together and how it got past the colonel Good you want to start? Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, so it was um, Steve Bender who was the, the producer on it. And, director. Um, director. Sorry, director. And he was brought in uh, by NBC, and he had to go through the colonel first. And the colonel's idea was essentially what uh, Nate said was going to be a Christmas special. I was going to go up there, sing a few Christmas songs, and that will be the end of it. And um, uh, Steve was like um, – for uh, first off, he wasn't a fan of Elvis. But once he got to talking with him and he saw how he was around um, his friends and some musicians, he like this should be the show this should be elvis coming up showing his various styles so um it was always a a a give and take with the colonel and the colonel finally acquiesced and said sure you can do it your way but we're still gonna end it with a with a christmas song and um elvis won um, a song was brought in if i can dream and elvis heard it and he's like i gotta end it with that and that was another issue so um to to um to get the colonel's blessing, they had to they had to take out uh, an excellent version of Tiger Man, and they replaced it with Blue Christmas. But uh, essentially, it, it woke up creativity in Elvis. He from then on, he didn't want to sing any song that he didn't truly believe in, and um, the colonel jumped on that. He's like. This is successful. Let's book him in Vegas, and that's how we get into the Vegas. But Justin, do you want to add anything to the '68 TV special? Talk a no. little bit about the impact yeah. of that TV show on Elvis, his yeah. career, and the greater culture. Yeah, well, I mean, and and the interesting thing is that's filmed like in the middle of summer, and they have no idea. Like they go in and they they do this pre-recorded TV special, and they have a, a great time doing it. And Elvis is re-energized, and uh, when he gets off the special, you know, he goes off and he puts a little more enthusiasm. You can tell in some of his 1968 films that he's a little more engaged. Stuff like Live a Little, Love a Little, um, you know, he's been energized by the 68 special, uh, and and some of the processes that have gone along with that but they don't actually know what's going to happen until it airs in december because it's still scheduled as a christmas special so end of 1968 uh it it shows up and essentially you know for people who haven't seen the 68 comeback special it opens with this extreme close-up on elvis's face and he's doing the the opening lines from the song from king creole trouble you know if you're looking for trouble you came to the right place uh you're looking for trouble you're looking right in my face and then he goes into you know uh rocking uh with guitar man and it's loud and it's electric and there's an orchestra there that uh is this very contemporary very very 1968 arrangement on on some of those um uh you know orchestrated numbers but then 
it cuts in and all of a sudden you've got Elvis in the round in a, in a boxing ring, essentially with, you know, his old players, you know, Scotty's there, DJ's there, uh, you know, Charlie Hodge is there and it's a bunch of, it's basically just the guys hanging out and playing music. And Elvis was apparently very nervous because he hadn't performed live since the early sixties. He had done, when he got back from the army, he'd done stuff in, in, in Memphis and, and, uh, as a fundraiser for the, uh, Pearl Harbor Memorial, you know, the USS Arizona Memorial. Um, but he hadn't performed live since then. And so he was apparently very nervous. And, and Steve Bender told him like, hey, you know, go out there. And if you don't have anything to say, just turn around and walk right out. And in fact, when you watch the outtakes from that that first sit down show, Elvis comes out and he sits down and he kind of cracks a joke like, oh, OK, I'm done. I'm going to leave. And then he, he comes back and you can see that like, OK, he's actually taking control of this and that comes across as people are watching the tv show where they see it you know more put together it's well edited um but they get to see elvis fired up and he's doing these classic rock and roll style numbers you know one night they they get to see elvis from the 50s again right uh and and it really fires up you know people that you know like hey elvis is back and that's where you know its official name has always been Elvis or uh, Singer presents Elvis because it was the the sewing machine company that was that was presenting Elvis uh, in cooperation with NBC. They were the, they were the sponsors. Um, but ever since then, you know, fans kind of collectively dubbed it the '68 Comeback Special, which which he didn't like. He's like, why, why do I? Why am I coming back? I didn't leave. <laughs> it's like LL Cool J don't call it a comeback. But yeah, and the thing I think it's hard to understand from our perspective in 2020 is just how big a broadcast network TV special was at the time. There were only three networks in America and millions, tens of millions of people would tune in. And, mm-hmm. and you know, this didn't get uh, the kinds of numbers that he got in the 50s, but it got enormous numbers by our standards. And, and you know, the Beatles were watching. Bruce Springsteen talks about watching it as a kid. Everybody was paying attention. And when they see Elvis, he's still young. He's beautiful. He's in this crazy black leather outfit, and he's cool and dangerous. And I, I don't know that the music from the special as an album holds up as well uh, you know, we can't recapture the impact of seeing that on TV, especially when, you know, you've seen uh, people have been seeing Elvis and tripe like kissing cousins and roused about <laughs> for years. And, and he's become a joke as the 60s, as all these developments have happened in the 60s. But suddenly he's back and he follows it up with the greatest album of his later career, which is from Elvis in Memphis. He goes back to Memphis, which he hasn't recorded in since he signed with RCA and left Sun Records in 56. And now he's at American Studios with Chips Moman, who is one of the key architects of Stax, who'd gone out on his own and put together an incredible team of session musicians and is going toe-to-toe with Stax and Muscle Shoals and, frankly, the Wrecking Crew in L.A. or the team in Motown. I mean, those guys put out some great records for many artists. And he has hand over Elvis and he, he play he picks the songs and, and Hill and range be damned. You know, they, they, I've got the great songs for you. I've got the hits, but we're not going to do any of your bullshit of trying to steal the publishing. <laughs> they tried. And, yeah. But, but he wouldn't go for it. And, and they produce a masterpiece with hits like suspicious minds and in the ghetto. And, then he never goes back. What happened that Elvis never works with chip moment again, Justin? I mean, 
really what it comes down to is that there was, again, it, it's that idea of the bin, business side of things interfering with the creative side. And it, it wasn't necessarily directed by Colonel this time. It was really more Felton Jarvis, the, the producer that had started working with Elvis. And Felton is a character for sure. Um, he had long been an Elvis fan and he had gotten his start as a producer and he had done, uh, he, he had produced, um, uh, sh- was it Sheila in the early yeah, 60s? Yeah, and he well, had Justin, me and you found out he was more than a fan. He was a fanatic. Yeah, he, there's this weird novelty single he recorded where he's like talking about Elvis at, like Elvis is like Jesus. I mean, it's really bizarre. Uh, it's out there on YouTube, but it, it, I mean, he was really a sycophant in, the, in, a, in a, a different sort of way uh, musically, and he had a very clear idea of what he wanted and how he wanted things produced. And as the American sessions were winding down, uh, you know, and chips is starting to put together stuff, Felton comes in and he's like, okay, we're going to do these overdubs. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Well, like Elvis had been and started performing in Vegas by the point, uh, that, you know, the album and uh, more of the singles were put together and Elvis starts performing suspicious minds live. And he starts doing this crazy, like he gets really, really quiet. And then he gets really, really, it's almost, like uh like shout you know it's very similar to that and it just goes on and on and on it's a fake uh, ending for like 10 minutes um and felton's like oh well we can just loop the ending on suspicious minds and fade it out and fade it back in and so he does that and puts it on the single and chips is like what are you doing to my to me and elvis's music you know and that you know felton taking control and rca taking back control from someone who could have had a more positive impact on Elvis musically and did have a positive impact on Elvis musically um, completely wrecked that relationship. You know, chips, you know, was never not friendly to Elvis and Elvis, you know, probably he was aware that it was going on, but Elvis was always very passive about the business side of things and went out of his way to avoid and talking about it or being around it. Um, and it really, it really was a shame because Chips kind of had a uh, an excellent path. I mean, Chips had worked with B.J. Thomas and he'd worked with Dusty Springfield, and I mean, it, it was really great material that that they were working on. Um, you know, and and I don't know if you Nate, you and I wanted to get into the the story about you know Roy Hamilton there, um, but it's one of the few incidents where. Elvis actually kind of is kind of an A and R man to a different artist. You know, that that's a thing that happens there too. And let's play that song. So Roy Hamilton is a guy who's a relatively obscure figure. Even Ed Ward, you know, my mentor and all of this was very unfamiliar with Roy Hamilton. He was a R and B slash pop singer in the mid fifties who brought um, Rogers and Hart's You'll Never Walk Alone into and Unchained Melody into the rock and roll uh, pop vocabulary. But he his career faded fairly quickly um, and he's trying to have a comeback. He's at the studios I guess Chips Moen or somebody knew that Elvis really loved Roy Hamilton and Hamilton's hanging around and they give him this song, Angelica. And let's hear Roy Hamilton's version of this song, Angelica by Roy Hamilton. Each night I meant to say I miss her through the day, but I'd forget it. I never said it I'd pass the flower shop Lord knows I meant to stop But I'd say tomorrow 
And that was Roy Hamilton doing Angelica. And, you know, I'm sure many people are wondering, what the heck? Why are we talking about Roy Hamilton? We're talking about Elvis. And, and there's two things. One, I want you to hear the influence, the obvious influence Hamilton had on Elvis's singing and, and why things like Now and Never made sense to Elvis. It's because singers like Roy Hamilton were also influenced by opera and operatic drama. And that song, that's the song that Elvis, that was for Elvis. And it's a great song. And when you hear the whole thing, you can really, uh, it's easy for me to imagine Elvis doing that song. And as great as Hamilton's version is, I'm greedy and I want to hear Elvis do it. You know, and, yeah, and so yeah. I, I think it's illustrative of Elvis's generosity. And I think the kind of fire that Elvis was commanding at that for a brief moment in 68 and 69 and you know this show we've gone way over i was hoping i don't know what i was thinking that we could cover the whole <laughs> fall of but Elvis, but... It, it goes right into what we were talking about at the top of the show where Goralnik really just couldn't squeeze you know it, it's so hard to squeeze it into two volumes yeah it's it's very true and i think another factor though as to why he didn't do it in the three volumes is that from 69 on the story gets sadder and sadder and sadder but <laughs> we've we've got one more thing i want to cover before we wrap this one up and that's elvis's return to live performing and you know scotty moore and dj are on the tv special and they're a key part of in the round and they're never called back scotty moore never sees elvis well they are called but um the money was so little that they said no because they were making more in Nashville. So they didn't offer them much at all, including the Jordanaires. So then they had to look elsewhere, essentially. Wow. And and so Elvis has to start from scratch. And he finds James Burton, who's been on the Shindig House Band, who was uh, Ricky Nelson's right-hand man and guitar player for all of Ricky Nelson's hits in the 50s and early 60s, and started out with Del Hawkins on Suzy Q, which is a great 50s rock and roll song. And James Burton and Elvis put together the TCV band, which is just a killer band and an unusually ambitious band. I mean, it's a big group, and, it, and it's got – ultimately, the Elvis band would include eight backup singers four men four women four white men four black women it's this very ambitious group it's very different from the kind of players that backed him on from elvis in memphis and I, i've but it's still brilliant performers and they're more there's a little less swing a little bit less offbeat stuff brilliantly in the pocket brilliantly tight and they triumph in vegas tell us a little bit about that gardeep um, well, essentially, this was Elvis coming back to live performing. Well, I mean, he got a taste of it during that 68 TV special, but this was him um, finally coming back to Vegas. And he didn't do good or great in Vegas the first time out in 56. He bombed, and we covered that on our show before. But now he was back. He was like uh, – he was um, – more experienced and he knew what he was doing and um he he's his his um set list was still a large part his classics with a few songs from uh, from elvis and memphis uh, uh put in there but um apparent according to everyone who witnessed it elvis was electrifying and it was stuff that they never seen before and um that would have been great to see, but um, and you can actually check out these performances because um, there was a box set put out last summer uh, with um, all the performances during that time period. But yeah, it was electrifying to see him back onto the stage again. And um, if it had continued down this route, it would have been great. But obviously, you know, it got to be too much uh, in Vegas. 
Yeah, and just some final thoughts on Elvis's Vegas tenure versus comeback. And there was a live album that came out in 69, correct? Live from the International in Las Vegas? Yeah, yeah, it was a double album backed with some of the uh, the other uh, cuts from American Sound. It was uh, uh, live at the International Hotel. And it's an excellent reco- uh, uh, record, um, really captures the – experience of of listening and seeing elvis on stage although you don't get the the visual obviously you even get that long version of suspicious minds on there um and and it's absolutely electric to listen to but but the thing about vegas that continues you know he starts off so successful there and then he continues to be booked there for essentially the rest of his life and and part of that has to do again with colonel parker you know parker was racking up these massive gambling debts there and uh you know there are rumors that you know he may have owed to the mafia as well and and that was part of the reason uh you know why Elvis got stuck so much in Vegas, but Elvis really kind of found himself in a rut even after they, you know, kind of, you know, it's like, okay, we did the Vegas thing and then they went to like Tahoe and then they tried, you know, let's go out on tour and tour across the U.S. But they always went back to Vegas because that's where Parker, you know, he could get his gambling in and it was a sure bet financially. And it it it, it really put Elvis in a, in a you know, not only a, a creative rut, but in a in an emotional rut, you know, he, he was bored. There are stories about him, you know, just really tearing up the place, uh, with the Memphis mafia and just, you know, and having criticizing, a time. criticizing some of the management, which, uh, really upset the Colonel. Cause I guess there were people that Elvis would, uh, some of the employees that were fired and Elvis would start bringing it up during his show, which, uh, <laughs> he's essentially, he's essentially criticizing the people who are paying him. And and let's end this with with a little snippet of that band at that time. And this is Elvis and the TCB band doing Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good. Elvis Presley doing Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good with James Burton and the TCB band. And it's just incredible stuff. And and for a brief moment there at the end of the 60s, Elvis was back at the top of the pile with top hits like Suspicious Minds and then hitting Las Vegas. And one before you know, one thing about the Colonel was he was very shrewd and he was always thinking how Elvis could reach the most people with the least effort. And camping out in Las Vegas. There was a lot to be said for it. A lot of people can see Elvis, and Elvis can make a lot of money, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of downsides. And I want to have you back on next season to wrap this Elvis tale because there's just too much to cover in the 70s. And again, it is a little depressing. There's not as much great music, but it's a great story. And thanks for coming on the show, Justin and Gardeep from the TCB cast. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Sorry we didn't get as far as we planned. Hey, that's my fault, and it was a great conversation. So happy it stretched out. And we're still let it rolling. This is Nate Wilcox, and we're back with Justin Gausman and Gurdip Lathur from the TCB cast to finish up our conversation on part two of Peter Goralnik's Elvis books. It's about careless love and also the HBO documentary The Searcher. So, guys, welcome back. When we left off, I believe we had covered the comeback special and the um, Elvis and Memphis album. But I want to go back 
to the comeback special because there's one aspect of it we didn't talk about. And that was Billy Goldenberg's orchestration. And and the way it was the first time I believe that Elvis had worked with a full-on orchestra. How did that impact his music for the rest of his career? Creep. Um, well, building Goldenberg was interesting because he wasn't really a fan of Elvis, uh, from what I remember reading. Um, he had like the, he had, his musical tastes were different, I guess, more Broadway. And then when he came into the, well, he only came into the, the 68 special because he was, um, a friend of Steve Bender. So, uh, it was more a loyalty than anything, um, or rather than, oh, he's a big fan. But when he did come in, he was, um, he kind of sat around for a bit because <laughs> uh, I guess Billy Strange was going to start, you know, uh, pick the have the song song selection, and Strange was incognito. He uh, he was or he was just gone because um, he was working on uh, Live a Little, Love a Little, and uh, he's working on some Nancy Sinatra album. So he was kind of um, he they mutually parted ways, and that's when Billy Strange could actually um, he actually finally was able to take control of what was going on with Elvis's music. He saw that he was practicing with the guys and uh, came up with these um, elaborate sets, um, interesting sets. Uh, some of them worked, I thought. Some of them didn't. But the ones that did, I think, influenced Elvis to go to, in that route in the 70s at uh, in Vegas, including some of the set dressing and the way he was – well, his clothes were a bit different, obviously. But um, I think he did influence the way he uh, approached uh, – a live audience. Uh, what do you think, Justin? Well, and, and I, I think more to what Nate's, uh, you know, kind of looking for is uh, uh, the arrangements because uh, Billy Goldenberg, like you were mentioning, was very different from Billy Strange, who was originally planned on. And and Billy Strange obviously has some influence in there. You can tell that the 68 arrangements are a lot funkier. They're a lot more contemporary. Uh, but you have this orchestration that comes in and that's throughout the show in any of the sequences, the gospel sequence, what they call the, the road medley, which is this long, almost like 15 minute segment. that's sort of a condensed Elvis Presley movie, uh, sort of celebrating that side of his career. And of course you've got, if I can dream and it's, when he, Elvis goes in and starts recording stuff like if I can dream, when he goes, Oh, wow, this is totally different than the last time that I performed with an orchestra in a meaningful way, which was back in 1956, which, you know, Nate, I think uh, on the first episode that we appeared on on Let It Roll, you were talking about that one. It wasn't very good <laughs> because the band just went completely one direction and the orchestra went a totally different direction. And Elvis is kind of stuck there in the middle uh, and not quite getting the timing right. And so it finally like he finally realized that it could gel and that it could work and it could amplify the type of music that he was creating and he took Do you think it was to his detriment though later on when he relied too heavily on the orchestration and less of a more intimate setting i think there's an argument to be made for that but i i also think that elvis was really trying to in the 70s be much more he didn't want to be the king of rock and roll or an oldies artist he wanted to be an all-around american entertainer and he wanted to show that in the music that he chose uh and performed with the tcb band mm. what do you yeah. think Nate? well i think i think it was in a sense less elvis following the pack and and that i think elvis's embrace of orchestration actually 
combined with another trend that was going on at the same time or that happened a little bit later, which is when the brightest lights of British rock and the sort of graduates of the Phil Spector production style met. And I'm thinking of like George Harrison working with Leon Russell and others or Eric Clapton working with Delaney and Bonnie. And, and you, you know, you get these enormous arrangements and, and for the first time in the late sixties and early seventies, you're seeing rock and roll played with full, not just orchestras. I mean, you are seeing that, but you're seeing, you know, bands with like two, three drummers, multiple pianists, multiple bassists, and this just big sound. And I think Elvis kind of helped lead the way. And I think that his gigs in Vegas and then his touring practice, he kind of got frozen there. And I, and I do think that it was somewhat to his detriment in that he never really aggressively pursued playing with a small band in the same way, definitely not live. And when he did play with a smaller band, like when he recorded with Stax and others, it was, it never quite gelled perfectly. But mm-hmm, I think right. that, that, that he was very much with the zeitgeist and seeking this grandiose sound. And I think that the ultimate Elvis that, that you get, you know, once he's got the thus spake Zarathustra entrance and the whole orchestra and everything is clicking that he, he sort of embodied that grandiosity mm-hmm. of the, of the early seventies musically. So I, I can't second guess him. I mean, obviously, you know, the road not taken, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. but, but it was of its time. And I think, I think it helped him make some very powerful music. And now I want to segue back, like, back to where we are in the narrative, which is putting the TCB band together. And we talked about this a little bit when we were rushing uh, to meet a deadline and now we've suddenly got a little extra time. So I want to, I want to go into that a little bit more. Um, Justin, you want to talk about what, how Elvis worked with James Burton to put that band together? Yeah. Well, I mean, essentially what happened was that, um, you know, basically Elvis's first call really was to James Burton, who was um, I mean, he had heard of James around the industry. Obviously, when you're you're Elvis Presley, you get to know uh, who everyone else is talking about. And James Burton had gone all the way back to, you know, he was on uh, uh, Suzy Q, uh, which was who was the artist that did that? I don't remember off the top of my head, but uh, Gail Hawkins, Gail Hawkins. That's correct. And then uh, uh, he was in Ricky Nelson's band for a while, and he really was coming up to be this sort of star guitarist and uh on shindig yeah he was yeah and and essentially what happened was that he and burton collaborated uh and basically elvis said i want the best in the business and so that's where you got guys like jerry chef and and john wilkinson doing bass and rhythm guitar respectively um ronnie tut was uh brought in uh on the drums uh, and he became kind of the mainstay although there at different points there were different drummers depending on ronnie's availability um and that's one of those things is that like the 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 TCB band we tend to think of as like sort of this monolith behind Elvis, but there was always uh, some of the, the small, you know, the, some of the players that were on different instruments did swap out every once in a while, but there was always uh, beyond that, there was always the, the backing groups as well. And Elvis decided that he wanted uh, strong voices, not only uh, white uh, singers backing him up, gospel-type singers uh, like the Jordanaires had been throughout the 50s and 60s, but he also wanted a black 
soul sound uh, with the sweet inspirations. I just just wanted to add on to that. Um, Strangely, he actually, before he made the call to James Burton, he did call Scotty DJ and the Jordanaires to come with him to Vegas. Um, And they weren't going to be paid very much. So they kind of, they kind of said, thanks, but no thanks. And that kind of forced Elvis to look elsewhere and change up his style. But it's, it's, it's funny how, Yes, this was, was going to be a new Elvis, but he looked toward the past first. And when that wasn't available, he's like, okay, well, maybe some of the Chips Moments guys are available, but they weren't. And then the Wrecking Crew, and then finally he's like, I haven't met him, but I'll call James Burton because he knew – he didn't. He never met him, but he knew him through Ricky Nelson. So that's interesting how it's not a transition, like an instant transition. He, he was kind of forced in that direction. Yeah, and I think – Coming off of the Elvis in Memphis sessions where he's playing with a really funky rhythm section that that plays off the beat just a touch. And then the band that Burden puts together is very much in the pocket. And so I, I really enjoy comparing and contrasting the Elvis in Memphis sessions with the live in Vegas 1969 sessions because you you – can even though it's Elvis it's a lot of the same material it really is the difference between a soul band and a rock band and yeah. and the and I, and I don't want when I say oh you know one band played really funky and the other band played in the pocket I'm not assigning a value judgment but right. I am but you can hear the difference and I think that there's more of a rock feel to um, the TCB band than what he was getting from Chips Moments guys. And and I really have come to enjoy that Live at the International album from 1969 immensely in the last few years. And it's one that I had slept on. Um, it's just one that doesn't get a lot of talk. You know, they talk a lot mm-hmm. about the comeback album. They talk a lot about Elvis in Memphis. But I have never seen the critics really going on and on about, um, you know, the first couple of live in Vegas albums. And I guess it's the taint of Vegas and what later became, you know, kind of a torrent of live albums from Elvis in the 70s. Yeah. But But even then, to your point, Nate, you look at an album like Aloha, which kind of overshadowed it. And even the live in Memphis album kind of overshadowed it because they became much more reflective of his set list as a whole. Whereas the 69 album, yes, it did reflect his set list at the time, but so much of it was grounded in his oldies material. And so he's, you know, he's pulling from Blue Suede Shoes. He's doing Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good. He's doing Hound Dog. He's doing uh, Mystery Train. Mystery Train. He's, he's really doing his older stuff. And I think because they were more contemporary material as he got through the 70s, a lot of people don't look back at that 69 album as, as much as they should, because you know, I, I think for some reason it's just like, oh, he's just doing the hits. He's not, you know, he's not doing these grandiose ballads like How Great Thou Art and, you know, showstoppers like My Way, which became, you know, much more what he was known for in the 70s. And then I'm going to throw a curveball. And this is one you guys suggested uh, that we play. And this is from right around that same period. And this is Memories from 1969 Live in Vegas. Memories press between the pages of my mind. Memories sweeten through the ages just like wine. 
And that's Elvis live in Vegas 1969 with the full orchestra doing Memories, which is just about as middle of the road as you could get in 1969. And I think that's a fun choice because you immediately see the influence that he's already internalized that kind of orchestration that that was new to him in a positive way on the comeback special and it's allowing him to broaden his palette a little bit and be convincingly middle of the road which is not something he'd ever been able to do before what do you think Mm -hmm. justin what's i just wanted to quickly jump in quickly uh that memories he dropped it pretty quickly from his live set because apparently sam phillips uh (laughs) said to elvis memory just it just closes the show. It just drops it. Like you're, you're here and you sing memories and you just basically kill the crowd. So just get rid of it. And I guess Elvis took it to heart and it wasn't there very long. Well, and that's one of the, that's one of those things where it's Elvis had a difficult time because most of the people that surrounded him were yes men. And so when he would get a criticism like that, oftentimes it was coming from a well-meaning place, but it, it also, I think, to him maybe felt, and I, obviously we're not Elvis Presley, so we couldn't say, but to me, reading how the 70s progress and how he just kind of sort of regresses into this isolation, both creatively and socially, uh, it seems like people just didn't understand what he was going for. And because it was just like, okay, well, everyone else apparently knows better than I do, um, he just sort of pass and and this continues throughout the 70s he just sort of falls back on what's comfortable rather than pushing to something that's different or you know more out there or even more contemporary and yeah he does pull in some of these ballads and 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 like you were you were trying to uh get me to there nate but uh you see that in memories and then it's progresses you get the 1970 sessions uh in nashville where he does the stuff for that's the way it is the documentary film and it's accompanying soundtrack you get uh elvis country um you get love letters from elvis and a lot of that material yes there's an element of country but like you said there's a lot of middle of the road pop material which is more in line with you know stuff that people like Tom Jones and BJ Thomas were doing uh, or, or Glenn Campbell even on, on the, you know, more country leaning side of things. Uh, and, and that's where Elvis really started to feel most comfortable at. And it wasn't a matter necessarily of rights. Like it was in the sixties. We talked, you know, last time about the problems with uh, song publishing uh, after the 68 special. I mean, Elvis said, you know, I'm not going to sing a song that I, I don't believe in. And he basically, you know, just started picking anything under the sun that sounded good to him uh, that got brought. And that's where you get stuff, you know, uh, as far ranging as you get the wonder of you uh, in 1970. But then you also get kind of weird stuff like life and uh, 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 heart of Rome. But then he'll throw out, you know, Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water to show that he's he's still pulling, you know, influence from other contemporary artists as well. He's not just. I don't know. It's yeah. There's a, there's a, a lot. Yeah. And and Bridge Over Troubled Water, I think, is sort of a quintessential Elvis cover of that period because it's a gospel-based song. Mm-hmm. It's very grandiose. It gives it gives him the 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 opportunity to really sink his teeth into it. And I think by the end, it it, it becomes sort of self-parody because that's all he's doing. You know, he's just going for that big over-the-top. Um, you know, crescendo, Mm -hmm. but in 1970, when he does it, it's very powerful. And, and I want to talk about those 1970 sessions. Cause I think, I mean, I definitely wouldn't want to compare them to the chips moment sessions of 69, which I think are one of Elvis's 
absolute peaks right up there with the 56 stuff and some of his best stuff from 1960. But I think the 70 sessions get slept on a little bit and it's definitely Felton Jarvis's best work with Elvis. He brings James Burton in, but otherwise it's the Nashville mafia and it's a new generation of Nashville mafia than the guys he played with, with Chet Atkins, but it's still the creme de la creme of Nashville country session guys. And I don't know. I think, I think there's some problem with the way it was packaged and put together by RCA and the Colonel, the, the I'm 10,000 years old or, you know, uh, the country album, Elvis Country, almost has a, or I guess it has a feeling of being a, a concept album or a unified statement. But the rest of them, I feel like, are a little bit diffuse. And it leads down this road where the packaging of the albums really does a, a disservice to Elvis. Absolutely. And, and we've talked about that before on, on TCB cast. And we, we often joke about the Elvis album covers of Elvis in a white jumpsuit on a black background and, and people who are familiar with Elvis's discography and know those original albums that those original LP releases know exactly what we're talking about in the seventies. If you're a consumer, you go into the record store and you see there's new releases from Elvis and you can't tell by looking at the cover, whether it's new studio material, whether it's a movie compilation, a, a compilation of songs, leftover songs from his movies, or it's a hits package, you know, it, the, there's just, they decided, and, and the logic, I guess, from Colonel Parker was that they saw that the live albums sold better. Uh, and so they just wanted to try to, conf I guess, confuse the general public as to like, oh, this must be a new live album. Um, but you never knew what you're getting at what you were going to get. And so you get pretty solid material on, you know, whether you agree or disagree on the, the, you know, track listings, but you know, some of the stuff from stacks like good times and promised land. And you can't tell the difference looking at the album cover from that with, I got lucky or come on everybody, which is all just a mix of random movie songs, stuff like yoga is as yoga does. And uh, you know, just the, the gamut of terrible movie songs. Some of that had to do with the Colonel as well. RC was kind of, was hampered by what they could put out and could not put out. So this is what the Colonel recommended and they had to go with it. And that kind of leads to um, something that I want to bring up. I don't think you had, it was that 1973 deal with RCA and, um, Elvis and I guess the Colonel, where they sold the the royalties the for any song pre nineteen seventy three. I don't know if you want to talk about it now or later. Oh, absolutely. Or no, or... Yeah, well, before I want to I get into that, I want to talk about the way they divided up those seventy sessions into three albums mm -hmm. and lead off with that's the way it is. And I've read, you know, Dave Marsh and and a couple other critics see that as this big turning point this this is where elvis goes south and elvis gives up on rock and roll and soul and being contemporary and goes into this bloated middle of the road thing and i don't think that's entirely fair i mean i've always been a sucker um for the that's the way it is album because of the second i, I only ever listened to the second side this was back in the days you know when you flipped albums and any album that starts with elvis doing You've lost that love and feel and, and wraps up with Bridge Over Troubled Water. It was just so over the top. And, mm -hmm. and you know, we used to just get our, you know, tennis rackets and and pretend to be Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can remember having slumber parties with my friends and just really belting it out and pretending to be Elvis to that stuff. And 
so I think the point that I'm sort of struggling to get to is that that was a legit statement on Elvis's part. It Absolutely. wasn't some concession. It wasn't some sellout. And it was a legit direction he was pursuing. Um, and there was sort of a, a strategy there, the way they split those three albums up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and serves very well. And so that's really all I wanted to, to get into. But I want to talk about should we talk about the 73 deal and then the stack, stack sessions or talk about the stack sessions and then the 73 deal? Maybe the maybe the deal first, because that's okay. sort of yeah. Yeah. So continue with, with what you're gonna say about the deal already. Yeah, so um because Elvis was low on funds and they all, and Colonel was always looking to get a, a huge lump sum of money. They made this deal where um, RCA paid uh, Elvis and the Colonel $5.4 million and all, and that was split 50-50 between them because um, this is a deal that Colonel set up. So under their original agreement, it was still 25%, but any kind of new uh, avenues of, uh, of income that he could come up with, they split that 50-50. So um, what they did was they, they sold off uh, Elvis's um, uh, artistic royalties, so all his, his publishing, or not publishing, but his, his royalties for any songs pre-1973. So, and, and this continues to, to, to this day. EP doesn't get any of the uh, artist royalties on those pre-73 songs, which is a big chunk and most of the most of the the popular songs fall into that uh, that uh, those years he does he still they still get publishing for every song that Elvis did but because he did own some of the the publishing on some of the songs although some of that stuff uh, uh, ex- eventually will expire so i don't know i don't know how how I don't know if that was a good deal for Elvis or not. Probably at the time he thought he needed uh, a large sum of money because he was spending a lot. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, it reminds me of the deal David Bowie put together, I think, in the early 2000s where they – or maybe the 90s. I think it was the 90s where they sold bonds against his royalties. And it solved the same problem. It got him a big cash infusion, but without – selling the yeah. permanent rights and and it was a much smarter way to do it than the way Elvis and the Colonel and I think the 73 deal is really the first sign that one or both of them are financially desperate because of their vices and and mm-hmm. their mishandling of money that this is the first time the Colonel's made a lot of short-sighted deals or deals that gave Elvis his art, artistry short shrift but rarely did he sign a deal that put himself in a increasingly weakened negotiation negotiated posture going forward so justin did you have thoughts on that yeah well and and the one major thing that kind of resulted from that is that you know yeah it gave elvis a a cash infusion you know in the short term but it opened up much later down the road as recently as like 2011 2012 something like that like that Elvis Presley Enterprises, his estate actually went after RCA and sued them uh, for, uh, you know, essentially saying that the deal that they cut was, you know, not fair to Elvis. And uh, I think they did it under, I think it was German law, uh, (laughs) just so that they could try to have the best case that they could. Um, And they they ended up losing that suit. But I mean, that's how 
far reaching the effects of that were where his family, his daughter and, and his grandchildren still to this day don't get any uh, royalties, artist royalties anyway, from his earliest and most popular recordings. And um, yeah, it's just one of those one of those things where you question Colonel Parker's uh, and, and yeah, Elvis, you know, is complicit in there as well. But Colonel Parker, you know, like we were talking about last time, he's he's at the root of a lot of Elvis's problems that just it it's it piles on more and more as the 70s go on. These- One other thing that I want to add to that deal that doesn't get um, uh, much ink is another thing on that deal was that RCA was allowed to publish any pre-1973 Elvis content without having to ask the Colonel or Elvis for permission. Um, they would eventually like have a deal with the Colonel on the side where he got some money from them because of it, like for uh, images or whatever, but they would publish things like the legendary performer uh, which includes picture of Elvis from the 70s, but a lot of the content was from the 50s and 60s. And Elvis is not getting any artist royalties on these or the, the Sun Sessions that came out in the 70s as well. So Elvis's new stuff is competing with his old stuff, and he's not even getting any of the money from it. It's it's, it's really bad. Yeah, the, Frank Sinatra ran into that problem with, when he had reprise records and Capitol Records was deliberately flooding the market with old Frank Sinatra stuff, knowing that Frank was carrying his record label solely with his own releases and was in a cash poor position. So it's one of those things where it's the kind of predicament that a star at that level can find themselves in. But let's mm-hmm. segue to these stack sessions in 1973. So they, um, I guess we should stop at Burn in Love because they, they sort of, in a, in a sea of pretty much uninspired stuff, they sneak in Burn in Love, which is a song that the band um, was really into. And Elvis was not feeling the rock and roll at that point. He's at a very low point personally. But they get him to record it. It's a massive hit, and it totally works. And let's just hear Elvis doing Burn in Love, 1972. Lord Almighty, I feel my doing hunka hunka burning love which for many people is really kind of the last gasp of the rock and roll elvis and it's just so frustrating to those of us who love rock and roll elvis that he didn't do more of that do you guys feel that pang or do you understand why elvis had moved on beyond that justin yeah for me i mean honestly burning love is probably in my top five favorite Elvis songs. Like, yeah, I really, really adore that, that recording. And I know that it was, they really had to twist his arm to get him to do it. Um, and it's a difficult song for him to sing. sing. You can actually hear him. Uh, it's not as apparent on the studio recording, but when he performs it live on the Aloha show, you can really tell he's straining to hit those higher notes. It's in a much higher key than I think he was really used to and, and comfortable performing at this point in 72. Um, but, you know, in t- as tr- 
as Elvis fans and as people who host an Elvis podcast, uh, my perspective on that recording is I'm glad it happened because it, it, it showed that Elvis could still rock. Um, but I, I do think that it, it arguably gave a little more ammunition to the people who were going, oh, well, you know, that Elvis – you know, should never have gone away. It's like, again, people just didn't understand what Elvis was going for and, um, and what he was trying to do. And, and maybe he was wrong for trying to do those things. But I, I think for me, having grown up a much younger generation, you know, for me, King of rock and roll, I, I always say King is a four letter word as far as I'm concerned. Um, because I, I think it shoehorned him. I, I really do. And, uh, that's not to say he didn't, because uh, after Burning Love, he does do Chuck Berry's Promised Land, which is, I mean, really rocking. And James Burton is just going crazy on that one. And uh, there's stuff even on the the last couple albums. Um, he's got For the Heart, which is a little more up tempo. Um, T-R-O-U-B-L-E. <laughs> T-R-O-U-B-L-E, yeah, which Travis Tritt later covered. Um, so, he, I mean, he he did have a few. Uh, well, we can agree to disagree on that one. <laughs> but <laughs> uh but I mean, he he did occasionally go back and revisit, but it was never quite as prominent or or as well marketed as Burning Love was, and it never certainly made as big of an impact. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that it happened. Um, I just I have mixed feelings about it, even though it's one of my top five uh, favorite Elvis songs. <laughs> he was evolving. He didn't really want to do rock as much, um, and as you guys were saying, he was pretty much forced to do it, and because it became a hit, he was forced to do it live, but he wouldn't even bother to remember the lyrics. He would have a song sheet in front of him when he was singing it. Um, and he just, you know, went through the motions when he did it live, but yeah, it's just his headspace wasn't in doing rock. That's the, that's the main thing people don't seem to understand. They want him to be that rocking Elvis from the fifties. Whereas people evolve, what are you going to do? Yeah. And Let's talk about the Stack session. So in 1973, he goes to Stax in Memphis, which is the kind of thing you're sort of wondering, why didn't he do this in 1965? You know, like just imagine Elvis dropping by uh, and seeing Steve Cropper and Booker T and Isaac Hayes and David Porter in the full Stax uh, at the peak of their powers, you know, in the, in the mid-60s, right there across town. And why yeah. didn't he do this sooner? But he he does do it in 1973, and Stax has moved on from Booker and T and, and the G's as their main rhythm section, although they still have Al, Al Jackson Jr. on drums. And, you know, they record, they record some great material, but it doesn't completely click. What went wrong and what went right, Justin? I mean, a good portion of it is, like I was talking about earlier, the albums were just terribly marketed. I mean, back to back, you've got Raised on Rock, you've got Good Times, you've got Promised Land, all three. You could interchange the titles and the 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 cover, the album covers, and it wouldn't make a difference. Um, but I, I think, I mean, Gurdip would argue that that the Raised on Rock album just didn't make sense. Uh, and and well, that argue, song didn't make sense. Yeah. First off, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, that was that was a song from Mark James, and it's essentially talking about who wrote Suspicious Minds, and that's essentially talking about how you know Mark James was growing up listening to people like Elvis Presley and listening to you know stuff like Hound Dog on the radio, which now Elvis is doing it. It doesn't make sense at all. Um, and Three Corn Patches, the the Lieber Stoller oh. song on that album's pretty pretty awful. That's probably uh, their uh, worst song. 
objectively awful. Um, but when you get into good times, you get into promised land, you start seeing that there's a direction that he's going. And it's actually interesting because there's a gospel influence. There's a country influence. And there's a funk influence in there. And it's really not until 2014 when Sony puts together the Elvis at Stack. Well, I guess it was 2013 uh, on the anniversary. Um, but they put together the Elvis at Stack's uh, set, which really brings these recordings together and showcases them in a way that it's like, oh, there was something musically that they were going for here. And I think it was really just that Elvis didn't care how it was packaged and RCA didn't know how to package it. Um, and so you've just got, you know, total lack of interest on everyone's part and they don't know what to do with it, but they, it's like, okay, well, we'll put the material out and see what happens. And that in the seventies, when everything else is going on, you know, culturally and he's not hitting the top of the charts and you've got artists out there like Elton John, uh, you know, and, and other artists at the top of the charts in the seventies, uh, it just didn't make sense. You know, it, it wasn't going to resonate unless you had an artist who was willing to be engaged with the material. As Justin said, a lot of it is the, the marketing is this. If you look at the good times album or raise it rock, it looks like every album from the seventies, people won't know what they're listening to. And then a lot of that had to do with the credit on the actual albums. We don't know that this is Elvis, stack because all it says is Elvis and the name of the album, because Producers weren't giving credit on Elvis's albums. That was a big thing for Chip's moment when uh, From Elvis in Memphis came out. Yeah. No no credit at all. So people don't know that this is something different. All they see is Elvis in front of a back black background singing live somewhere. So is this a live album? We don't know. You got to buy it to find out. But, I mean, you get in there and you get stuff like, you know, I've got a feeling in my body and uh, – Good time uh, Charlie's got the good blues. Time Charlie, yeah, and good times and find out what's happening. I mean there's some really great deep cuts in there that most people today just don't know about because they just didn't get the light shown on them, you know, that maybe they should have at the time. Uh, and, and granted, and some hear, of them um, shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. Let me jump in and let's let's hear a little bit of I Got a Feeling in My Body. Elvis Presley at Stax Records, I got a feeling in my body, Elvis Presley at Stacks. And now I want to segue to more what's happening on the live side. And so Elvis spends quite a bit of time playing in Vegas. And from the Colonel's perspective, this is just brilliant. You don't have to travel. The audiences come to you. The paydays are lavish. And then there's the rumors that the you know Colonel had a gambling problem, and so he could just stay there and indulge his vices, and Elvis could stay in the hotel and indulge his vices. Well, ultimately, Elvis gets frustrated with that, and and you know, the the high roller crowds eating dinner at the big tables. It's not the energy Elvis wants from a live crowd, and so they they go on tour. Elvis wants to tour internationally. He's always wanted to tour internationally and see the world. And the colonel, as we know, has this um, passport issue. He's he's an illegal alien and, and and here under an assumed name. So he comes up with what is really a pretty brilliant solution, which is to do a concert spectacle in Hawaii, 
broadcast live via satellite around the world. And this is really Elvis's last hurrah at the pinnacle of show business. Gurdip, tell us about this Elvis Aloha from Hawaii. Well, um, so yeah, as you were saying, because Elvis didn't tour um, uh, uh, anywhere else but the well in the seventies in in the, the United States, the Colonel's idea was to show this around the world, and it, Elvis would perform in Hawaii and various time zones. And they did a they did a rehearsal show first, and then they did the actual show on what was the date again? January fourteenth, uh, which yeah. was uh, worldwide. Um, now. <laughs> A lot of people say this was the pinnacle of the 70s and Elvis never looked better. And the, the if you look at the set list, it was pretty much uh, a, a good a general idea of what his set list was in the 70s. But to me, Elvis looked a bit off on the show if you watch it. He just seems – he doesn't seem like he's there Um I don't know why he just has this faraway look on his face. Like if you watch him on Elvis on tour, he may be a little puffy, but he's present. But if you look at the 73 or the Loha show, something's off about him. I don't know if he's engaged. Justin thinks that it's just because of the lights and this whole spectacle, but I don't know. What What do you guys think? Yeah, to me, uh, with Aloha from Hawaii, the thing that, that is most remarkable is that it was the first time that this had ever been done. Uh, you know, such a a broad, you know, I mean, beamed all around the world. Uh, the only place, ironically, that it wasn't beamed live was the U.S. Uh, they actually got an edited version later on with additional songs uh, that he recorded after the show. Um and and I mean the set list is really good. It uh, it was issued as a double LP and it I mean went straight to number one, uh, and it, it was a good success for him. But like Gurdip said, um, as Elvis fans looking back, it's easier to see now that uh, you know whether that to me I think it's just nerves. I mean because it this was so unprecedented. Some people think it was you know that he had his his drug issues at that time and that may have played a factor in it. Um, and some people think it may have just been. And, you know, on top of that, you know, he may have been having some health issues. Um, but despite that, it's a massive success for him. And uh, he could at least celebrate that. And it, it became really a milestone along with the 68 special. Um, and, and, you know, you've got him out there. And he, again, was trying to do the thing where he's not being just Elvis, the king of rock and roll. And, yeah, he throws in Johnny B. Good and he throws in Hound Dog. He throws in Blue Suede Shoes. But he also throws in stuff like the Beatles something uh, and he throws in uh, uh, James Taylor's Steamroller Blues, which, yeah, he'd been doing for a while. But to do it on a world stage and show that he's doing contemporary material, he goes back and he pays homage to his country influences. He does Hank Williams. He does I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. Uh, really just all around showing. And then, of course, culminating in American Trilogy, uh, which I think to me is probably the peak of that show where – you know, it, it like you said, Nate. I, I I think the best phrase is over the top. Um, but at that time, I mean, he, he had to be over the top. He was Elvis Presley. He was the phenomenon. He had to live up to the expectations that people had for him. And he was uh, taking three different songs. I mean, granted, Mickey Newbery arranged it, but he's doing you know Dixie, this this minstrel song that was the anthem of the Confederacy. He's doing the Battle Hymn of the Republic you know, on the union side. And he's doing all my trials, which is this old African-American spiritual and really showing to the world like, Hey, 
I'm an American artist and this is what the American musical experience is about. And to me, I, I think regardless of where Elvis was, you know, in his headspace and his health was at, I think that's what makes that show most memorable. Yeah, absolutely. My only frustration with it, I don't think he was in his best voice and no. even for that period. And it's frustrating, especially like something really annoys me because I really want to hear him tear into that song. And, and it just doesn't seem like he's got the firepower there that he needs to. Do you know but, there's an earlier version of that? I think he did it in 70 in the on to or the that's the way it is engagement. Yeah. And, it, and yeah. it's much better way way <laughs> better and and said so that the 73 version has always frustrated me and i've always tried to uh, you know i always wanted that symmetry of of you know masterpieces of this period and i was always trying to will elvis aloha <laughs> to be you know a masterpiece and, and i can remember talking about about the meaning of American trilogy when I was like 11 or 12 years old with some friends and 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 trying to work myself up into a lather about how important and meaningful this was, um, and I think it was. I, I mean, I do I do understand what he was going for, and I, I think he was putting the emotion out there, and that that was really what he was after was for chances for him to sort of turn himself inside out and just tear his guts out and, and and rip his heart out in front of an audience and show it to everybody. And this is how much he cares, and this is how much he feels it. And he does that, but his his voice isn't just isn't quite there. And I got a, and, I got a question, yeah. Nate. Do yeah. you think that it would have been a stronger, more memorable show if it had been a year before and it had been the Madison Square Garden show? Definitely. Oh, absolutely. Because I'm livelier on the Madison Square Garden show. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, that 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 show is legendary. And I think two of the Beatles were in the crowd um that night and, mm -hmm. and it was just a you know a big deal a big deal for New York a big deal for Elvis a big deal for for America and um, you know Elvis so many of Elvis's career highlights took place in New York City and, and yeah I think I think I think the Colonel's grandiosity uh, and the Elvis's propensity to go in that direction sort of you know distracted everybody but Aloha you know what did it sell five million copies or three million copies I mean it was an enormous success yeah it's really his last big success on album and from there they sort of reprise the 60s but it in an even more tragic sense because you know they they mm -hmm. eventually get to where they're 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 done. Vegas is done with Elvis and Elvis is just on the road and Elvis is looking for money because, you know, he's into collecting horses or he's into collecting private planes or, you know, he's he's got some expensive new hobby and police and, badges from President Nixon. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. And, you know, and, and every other department that he, you know, can party with like Denver or whatever. And, and you know, but he, he, he gets on this treadmill and he's he's hitting points of diminishing returns and, you know, Dr. Nick is perhaps Dr. Nick is trying to keep the pills away from him or trying to keep the pills manageable. But meanwhile, you know, there's the evil acupuncturist that's injected him with opiates or whatever the story is. And, and he's, you know, those last few years of recordings are just painful. And there's a few moments, um, where Elvis shines through and expresses that pain. What, what for you? What is what are the peak moments of those last couple of years, Justin? Uh, I mean, for me, you go back and you listen to those last couple albums from Elvis Presley Boulevard, Memphis, Tennessee, which is again a terrible album and a terrible album cover. But you've got. To me, what Danny Boy sticks out, and and like the problem with this album 
is that it by this point Felton Jarvis is way overproducing everything. He's got heavy reverb on it. Uh, I mean, it's just really maudlin arrangements. Um, but even in spite of that, Danny Boy, I think, is a really excellent one. Um, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, um, which Elvis, apparently it was the last song that he sang before he died. Um, it, it's not a remarkable recording, but it's an interesting performance. Hurt, which was a cover of a, of a Roy Hamilton song, and also uh, Timmy Euro had, had a version of it as well. Timmy Euro had the version of it, let's be clear. Well, but Roy Hamilton had it first. <laughs> uh, and then in, in the vein of Hurt, I mean, you, you hear that Elvis is going back to his earliest influences uh, because in the 1977, uh, when he's on tour and he's supposed to be doing this TV special for CBS, he, he whips out Unchained Melody uh, in Rapid City. And that's become, in modern years, it's become the definitive performance of uh, Elvis's later years, even though he's... It never actually appeared in the television show as broadcast. It only showed up later on on the Great Performances uh, VHS you know, program compilation that got put together after he died. Um, and yet it's now like, I mean, you go on online and you look for, you know, Elvis on YouTube and, you know, it's like multi-million, you know, views on this on this video uh, of Elvis doing Unchained Melody. And let's hear it. I want to. I want to play Elvis doing uh, Unchained Melody in 1977. And that's Elvis Presley doing Unchained Melody, a song that Roy Hamilton, his idol, brought one of his idols, brought into the the rock uh, repertoire in the mid '50s, and and was and done as a big hit version by the Righteous Brothers in the '60s. And watching that video is absolutely painful. I mean, Elvis is bloated; he's obviously in dire health, and yet he's still able to express and. I find myself losing, you know, sometimes at at particularly low moments, I found myself wanting to share to wallow in pain with Elvis Presley. And it's, it's a, it's a great one for doing that. And he had that power almost right up to the end of being able to communicate with audiences and give seemingly more than he had Uh, and an incredible gift. And, and it, you know, one thing I liked about The Searcher was the way that they ended by listing how many recordings he had made and how many yeah. movies he had made and how many live concerts he performed. And they kind of tie up the series, on a, uh, the two-parter on a theme that Elvis gave and gave and gave, that he lived to perform, that was his gift, and you can't deny that he did it right up to the end. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah, I, watching The Searcher, to me, the, the thing that was most moving in there for me, uh, that I'm glad that Tom Zimney, who was a director, uh, he kept using this imagery throughout the, the show, uh, the two parts of this kid on a bicycle and, you know, riding his bike through backcountry roads in, in Tennessee or Mississippi. And then 
at the end of the film, you see that, you know, that, that it's, they 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 show this close up of Elvis's bike as as the the song Hurt from the Jungle Room Sessions is playing and you hear the pain in Elvis's voice as he's you know straining to hit these notes because it's an alternate take where he's not as polished as he is on the on the final version and they focus in and they just do this slow zoom in on this this crumpled old bicycle that's on the you know, at the Graceland property today. And then they show this picture of Elvis as a kid with this bicycle that he looks so proud and happy. And it's, it's that loss that, that loss that everyone felt, uh, in the seventies. And it, it's, you know, it's really palpable at that moment in that film. Uh, and to me was really a, a moving moment that, that they managed to craft there. And, and Gorelnik in so many words kind of does the same thing. Uh, really, uh, cause he obviously goes, you know, and paints the picture of how Elvis's passing actually occurred. But in the end of, of his book, he gives a really nice summary of where Elvis's influences, uh, led him, you know, musically. And that, you know, at the end of the day, it really comes down to as much as people want to talk about his personal life or they want to talk about what he did wrong and what he did right and really kind of pick those things apart. The body of work that he left us is so remarkable. And that's why, I mean, that's why Gurdip and I do what we do where we use him more as a, a launch pad to, to examine, you know, pop culture of the 20th and 21st century. Cause he paved the way in so many different ways, uh, sometimes inadvertently, you know, but uh, yeah, it's good. And your and your final thoughts, Gurdip. Uh yeah, what Justin said. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, 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 he. I mean, he summed it up beautifully. I, I don't know if I could add on to that at all. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I, I I really don't know where else to go with this. I mean, it's a monumental, tragic tale. I think Garalnik does a brilliant job of telling it in two volumes. I I agree with you guys that that the second volume is kind of rushed, um, but I don't think that a I don't think doing it as three volumes really would have solved that problem. And, and no. just because the, the, the end, the denouement is so depressing and tragic and dark. Uh, the last four years of Elvis's life are pretty unrelentingly grim. And, you know, I mean, I think we're all lucky not to be Elvis Presley, not to be cursed yeah. with that kind of talent and that kind of opportunity, that kind of fame. And but also fortune, that kind of, that, that kind of expectation. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, once he achieved what he achieved, basically coming out of nowhere in, in the mid 50s and electrifying the world and becoming the first television, maybe not the first television music star, but definitely the first television rock star and the definitive TV rock star of the 50s uh, and again makes enormous impacts on TV again in the 60s and 70s. And it's just heavy duty stuff. It's a, it's mm -hmm. American tragedy. It's American greatness, and it's been a real treat to discuss it with you guys. So thanks so much, and and we'll be listening to the TCB cast every chance we get. Thank, thank you. you, Nate. It's been so much fun getting to to chat with you as well. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when Ben Merlis joins Nate to talk about Hip Hop's Juice Crew and Cold Chillin' Records. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.
Careless Love, The Unmaking of Elvis Presley is published by Back Bay. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.